Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. We are a Jesus-centered community in El Mirage, Arizona. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. All right, so we're stepping into a new series this morning, focusing on the famous passage from Micah 6.8. And what we're hoping to do is just kind of step back as a church and just kind of refocus on what are the essentials for us if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our culture is growing polarized on just about every topic imaginable. And this lack of a middle ground or a compromise, it just creates this tension. And this tension in our culture has continually increased to the point where we actually view people who disagree with us on various topics as enemies. And now it may be something as silly as whether it's Diamondbacks or Dodgers. Too soon? <laughs> or whether it's Starbucks or Dutch Brothers. See, the people who are vocal are Dutch Brothers. All the Starbucks people just quietly type on their laptops. So, which is why I go there. I like silence. I've got five kids in my house. I don't need a loud, booming environment. Moving on. But then there are those topics that they really kind of evoke some deep emotional responses from us. <clears throat> Things like abortion or gay rights or health care, education. Maybe you're trigger topic is gun control or immigration. And there's just a host of other topics. And all of these topics seem to have one thing in common. They can get real ugly real fast. And most of the people in our country are completely polarized on the issue. Our political affiliations are pretty much split right down the middle, one side versus the other. And yet there seems to be little or no middle ground on anything. So one side is either 100% correct on all issues or 100% dead wrong on all issues. And rarely do you hear, ever hear one side look at the other side and go, you know, they kind of got a point on that one there. Like, you just don't hear that, right? Because there's always some kind of spin to try to, you know, debunk why, well, they, I know that that seems right, but really what they don't realize is this, this, and that, and this, and the other. It's like, we can't do it. We can't just say, well, they've got a point. And this is kind of what I call the crazy cycle that our culture seems to be stuck in. And so when I find myself getting caught up in one of these tornadoes of crazy, I cling to verses like Micah 6.8 to just help stay grounded, to help reset myself. But what we're going to see is that while this verse seems like it's simple, that it might even make our lives easy, it narrows our focus so that we can be impactful. But this verse and the implications that it should have for our lives should make us very uncomfortable. So you've been warned. This message today will probably make you squirm in your seat a little bit. So I'm going to turn my back. If you want to hightail it out of here right now, I'm going to give you about three good seconds. So we'll see how fat. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are moving. (laughs) All right. So what I'm hoping to do um, this morning is I'm not going to resolve any of these hot button issues for anyone. Okay. But I want to challenge each and every one of us to maybe revisit them with a different approach. So let me quickly give you some context on this passage of Scripture in Micah that we're going to refer to. So during the time of Micah, the nation of Israel was divided um, into two kingdoms at this point. And Micah is called by God to prophesy to the nation of Israel, but he is primarily focused on dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah. 
Now the circumstances was with most of the prophets of that time were that the priests and the leaders of the nation had failed to keep the people focused on the things of God. And so the influence of other cultures bled in and began to blur God's truths. Laws were created by man that gave benefits to some while suppressing others. And basically they were ignoring injustices all around them and drifting further and further away from what God had originally commanded. So here comes Micah on the scene in Judah around 8th century B.C. And the tone that you get from this book is almost like a scene in a courtroom. So you've got the people of Israel being called on account to their behavior or lack of behavior in certain cases. You've got Micah who is like the prosecuting attorney. He's laying out all the evidence of why the people of Israel are guilty. And then you have God who is actually the judge in the court case. And he has declared that the nation of Israel is guilty. So he's, he's, you know, he's created a verdict. He's handed it out. However, there's a twist to the scene. So instead of things playing out in a way where there's a verdict and then a sentencing, the script is kind of left open-ended. And while Micah at one point is the prosecuting attorney, he begins to function more like now a, a color commentator at a sporting event. So Mike is assessing what the team has done up to this point, pointing out their mistakes and their flaws. But then he comments on what the team needs to do in order to readjust for the second half and turn things around. You see, the people of Israel had realized to some degree that they lost their connection with God. They started seeing the signs that things were kind of on shaky ground. But what they reverted to was more religious behavior, hoping that that would win them favor and leverage with God. But God wasn't having any of it. In fact, he was quite disgusted with it. And that's where this verse, this short but very powerful verse, comes into focus. See, as Micah is speaking for God, he was calling out to the people of Israel, reminding them of God's faithfulness to them, despite their inability to honor him in return. And when they realize the truth that Micah is laying out, they begin crying out, okay, so what do we need to do? Do we need to ramp up our burnt offerings? I mean, we will burn this whole city down. You know, do we need to pour out our olive oil so that there's a river of it? I mean, do we need to sacrifice our own children? I mean, what is it that we need to do? And here is God's response to them. And this is kind of where we're going to settle for the rest of this morning. So God responds to, you know, more burnt offerings, olive oil, kill our kids. I know we feel like doing that sometimes. But God says, no, oh, people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, Micah's actually quoting Deuteronomy 10 back to the people. They already knew what God desired for them. They just simply forgot or they lost focus. And the thing I love about this verse, because I'm kind of a minimalist at heart, is that this is kind of like the minimalist approach to faith. Yet, its completion will never be realized in our lifetime. This is a lifelong work, this idea of doing justice, of loving mercy, and walking humbly. There's no completion for us. So this morning, we're going to focus on just the first part of that. Do what is right. Other translations read to act justly. So what is justice, right? Well, in its simplest form, do what is right. But how do we determine what is right? Well, for me, justice is essentially the act of reversing an injustice. I was going to let it linger for a while. 
an injustice. You're allowed to interact with me here, okay? I, I work with children. I'm used to being interrupted, okay? So don't be afraid. You're not going to catch me off guard. So justice is essentially the act of reversing an injustice. And my definition of an injustice is any action, law, or policy that violates the God-given value of an individual. So when we talk about justice, for me, that is any action that we take to restore that God-given value to an individual. You know, it's always very telling for a pastor when new people come to a church and the first thing they want to ask you about are these divisive points of theology. Well, what's your take on, on the end times? Or where are you at with predestination? And what about women in leadership? And they, and they always want to ask you these questions. And all they really want to do is argue. Because the pattern that we recognize when, when that is the first approach from people, and I'm being very just vulnerable here, okay? Um, pastors are very cynical. I'm sorry. You're just getting a look into uh, our hearts is that what we recognize is when, when that's all that people care about, they don't really want to do anything. They just care about what they know. And they're all about just knowing more, winning the debates, being more intellectual about their faith. But the reality is God doesn't care how much you know. He's not that impressed with it. Because you can know everything and do nothing. And that is the thing that will upset God more than anything else. God is more impressed by what you do than by what you know. I'm not saying you should be ignorant. That's not what I'm saying here. But be about doing the things that we ought to do. And here's the little secret you need to know about justice. You don't have to have a formal degree to do justice. You don't have to have a master's of divinity to do justice. You just need to have a heartbeat and the ability to respond to the call of God. You know, it would actually be very refreshing to a pastor if a new attendee approached us and simply asked, hey, what issues of justice are you involved with and how can we help? That would blow our minds. It really would. Now, if we're being honest, we know when we recognize an injustice, right? I mean, look at what Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 through 14 says. This command I am giving you today, it is not too difficult for you. In other words, this is not rocket science. It is not beyond your reach it is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it on our way? It is not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask, who will cross the sea to bring it to us so we can hear it and obey? No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. And so this idea of recognizing an injustice it doesn't take a huge amount of intelligence. There's something inside of us that becomes unsettled when we see an injustice. And we can't let it go until the right thing is done. And honestly, I believe that God put that there on purpose. And so if we can recognize an injustice on a gut level, I think the question that might be a little unsettling is, how is it at times that we can ignore an injustice, especially one that directly involves us? And this is kind of unnerving, but can we accept our own culpability to overlook an injustice when it benefits us? Let me give you an example. Most of us are familiar with David's story, right? He's known as a man after God's own heart, but he's also known for being a passionate person to a fault. And so when this man after God's own heart allowed his own heart to dictate his behavior, he committed adultery, murder, 
And then he tried to cover it up. And it would seem for some time that those justices would go, or those injustices would go unchecked. But then Nathan arrives on the scene and tells David a little story. I mean, how awkward is that, right? You've just killed a man. You've got his wife now living with you, who's pregnant, by the way. And a prophet shows up. And as we've seen, usually prophets don't come to bring good news. And you would think that something would click in David to go, "Uh uh-oh, this can't be good. But he doesn't. The prophet shows up and says, hey, I want to tell you a little story, David. And he's like, really? What's his story? Let's hear it. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. Babe, come on in. Nathan's going to tell us a story. And so if you want to follow along with me in, in 2 Samuel 12, the Bible reads, So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. Personally, that's a little weird. I don't like animals eating off my plates and drinking it on my cups. Kind of a dermaphobe that way. But apparently that was something they did back then. A little weird, but sorry, we'll get back to... So there's the, this, the lamb eating and drinking from the cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Okay, so they're pretty close to this lamb. And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock, because he had many of them, or his herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Now you would think David would be pretty quiet. That you'd hear a pin drop as he begins to kind of, you know, dust off the cogs in his brain and start recognizing, oh, he's talking about me. But he doesn't. You see, when injustice involved him, he didn't see it. But now that this other scenario is placed before him and he's removed from the situation, he sees the injustice all too clearly. And in his response, David asks, or answers, I should say, this unspoken question. Of what does justice require? Look at how David responds. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. I mean, come on. And ironically, David doesn't recognize his own sin in this story. He's infuriated by what he hears, yet it's a description of his very own actions. And see, David's oversight in this moment is really indicative of all of us at times. Because we clearly see an injustice when we're removed from the situation. However, when we're the benefactors of someone else's injustice, sometimes we don't see it very clearly. Or sometimes we minimize it. And we say things like, well, you know, the situation is just beyond us. I mean, what can we do? And then we just allow it to go on. So what I think we need to learn from this example from David's life is that as humans, we're pretty much crappy. So have a great day. We'll see you guys later. No, that's not it. What we need to learn is that when tension in our culture, when issues that really divide people surface, and there seems to be a lot of them, we have to learn how to step back from the way we immediately feel about any given situation and start beginning to ask simple questions. What does justice require? Is there an issue of justice here? And if so, what does justice require? 
Look at what God tells the people of Israel through the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 12, 6, he says, So now come back to your God. Act with love and justice and always depend on him. You see, God loves us. And when we seek justice around us, we're loving him back. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus told us what? The greatest commandment was to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so when we look at Micah 6, 8, God is giving us specific ways to love him. So when we act justly, we are loving God. And so again, the question I want us to answer when there seems to be these areas of tension, these, these questions of injustice, is what does justice require? Now, if you recall, I define justice for our discussion this morning as any action that we take to restore the God-given value back to an individual. And so again, there are not a lot of easy answers to some of these questions that are in front of us on a day-to-day basis. But we need to wrestle with them. We need to take them before God and seek his face on these issues. And it may even require us to actually fast so that we clearly hear from God. And sometimes it means that we're going to have to surrender our confidence on a particular issue because we feel like we know for certain what the right thing to do is. But we need to just put that aside and just say, I'm pretty confident about this, God, but I'm still asking you to speak because maybe I'm missing something. Just maybe. So earlier I threw out some landmine topics for some of us. I could see some people stiffening up as I lifted them off. And these issues have created a mass of tension and separation and division in our country. Because each issue feels fresh. It's like a, a, a big scab that just keeps getting picked over and over again. Whether it's this event or that event or, you know, whenever political season ramps up. And so while it feels fresh, a lot of these issues have been around for a very long time. And I want to reiterate that I don't have clear-cut answers for you on these issues, okay? I mean, I have my opinions. I've got like a 40-foot container full of opinions. Um, But I'm wrestling with these things as well. I'm wrestling with them, and, and I'm doing my best to approach these issues with open hands, with a clear agenda, and just simply asking God to show me, how do I work toward justice in this issue, toward restoring the God-given value back to individuals. And so again, things like the recent Vegas shooting, and it erupts something up inside of us. And of course, then the issue of gun control is, is, is huge with everybody. And yet, guns have been around for a very long time. Issues like abortion and education get thrown in our face whenever an election season ramps up. You know, our current administration has made immigration and healthcare an extremely volatile topic for many And all that that tension seems to do is just simply polarize people further away from each other. And we demonize each other, even to the degree that we hate each other. And so how do we navigate this as a church? How do we approach this stuff? Well, again, I don't have all of the answers. I may not even have any of the answers. And this is not an official position from Reveal Church, right? This is, this is me sharing my heart and, and trying my best to remain objective because my first priority is to the kingdom of God rather to, than to any other kingdom. And I also want to point out that for me personally as a follower of Christ, I believe that because we live in a broken world, that we need to accept that for some of us, many of these different issues and these tensions will never be resolved on this side of eternity. 
But there are some things we can and should do to help work toward justice. Now, the first thing that we need to do when it comes to dealing with justice is that we actually need to do something. Do something, right? Sitting on the sidelines and casting stones should never be an option. God isn't telling us to get philosophical about justice. He isn't asking us just to blog about it. He isn't asking us just to like certain Facebook pages or retweet that quote or retweet this quote. And while none of those things are inherently bad, what God is asking us to do is to do justice. Do something. Do something that restores the God-given value back to an individual. But at the same time, we need to remember that our world is littered with injustices, and we cannot fight them all. And it's why we need to be in prayer about what our role in this world is supposed to be. You know, one person cannot realistically do something about every injustice, but collectively, the church can. Our job is to present each item that comes across our plate to God and just ask, what are we to do with this? And if it's not clear, then just keep praying. And for some of us, you already know what your injustice is. You know what keeps you up at night, and that's that thing that you're committed to fighting for on a daily basis. And you need to continue to be a force for justice with regard to that issue, but graciously allowing the rest of the church to find their niche. For example, my wife and I, we're involved with foster care. It's a big thing. I, I feel like, you know, what many children and families are experiencing in our culture, it's an injustice. And we're responding to what we feel like God has called us to do. But at the same time, we don't look down on people who aren't involved with foster care. It's not for everybody. And the reality is there's some of you who shouldn't be doing it. But that's my issue. And that's my area of obedience to God. And, and while there may be some no-brainer items that are right in front of us at times, those long-term justice issues that we're going to be working toward, they're going to be different for each of us. And so we have to be gracious to other people who may be a little bit more passionate about something else than you are. You know, I, I think Bill Hybels coined the term, or maybe it was T.D. Jakes, I can't remember, but that this idea of a holy discontent, that when you know what your holy discontent is, then that's the thing you've got to zero in on but recognizing that it's not going to be every issue that's out there. But the reality is we still need to do something. Like, I'll never forget Hurricane Katrina. It was one of the most mind-boggling things I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. A country as sophisticated as ours, completely debilitated from helping out a city after a natural catastrophe. That whole event was littered with injustice after injustice, and it was unnerving the things that surfaced in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. I'll never forget the feeling of disgust that I experienced during one of the newscasts that was taking place. In fact, we put the image up. I can still see it in clearly in my mind as if it was watching it today. And so the reporter is standing on a bridge reporting on the devastation that was happening. And, and he actually has the audacity to, to position himself to where there's a shot of him reporting. So you could see an elderly person lying face down on the concrete. And he's reporting about, look what's going on. This is terrible. And I remember screaming at that screen, Put your stupid microphone down and go help that man out. I don't want to, I don't care what you know. I don't want any more information at this point. I'm disgusted by what I see. I want you to put your fame and your notoriety down and just go be a decent human being. How do you ignore someone just laying down there like that? That person deserves more dignity than that. 
It shook me to the core. But it was this idea that, again, when we see an injustice, more information isn't going to help us. We need to do something. So when you see an injustice that it evokes an emotional response in you, that's your cue to do something. Sorry. The second thing we need to do when it comes to justice is we need to accept the inconvenience. Because, you know, when an issue of justice needs to be addressed, rarely is it ever convenient or without cost. Like, this is so great. We get to usher in justice and nobody's ever put out. No, that doesn't happen. It never happens. Whenever something threatens our comfort, though, our safety or our finances, we tend to push back. We're really bad about this in our country. We're not as concerned about what justice requires when it affects our comforts or it lowers our standards of living. But what you need to know is that justice will always, always come with a cost. You know, whenever we work to restore the God-given value to individuals in our world, our enemy, the devil, he's going to impose us. And so you're going to have to have some skin in the game. You know, well wishes and memes don't help. Action does. And action will always require sacrifice of some sort. And again, I, I think this is a hard one for Americans because statistically, on average, we sacrifice out of our abundance, out of what's left over. Rarely do we sacrifice in a way that creates discomfort. And I'm not saying that to shame anybody. I'm guilty of this at the same time. But we have to, to see that when it personally affects us, our involvement needs to be more than just on the outside looking in and hoping for the best. We have to get close to the situation. We have to be uncomfortable at times, and we have to be willing to sacrifice things. I mentioned earlier that my, you know, my family and I are involved in foster care. And currently there are around 428,000 children in the U.S. foster care system. And of those 428,000 children... Yes, Lord? 107 aren't even in homes. 107,000 children without a home to be in. They're in group homes or they're in institutions. Some of them have been emancipated and others have just simply run away. That's an injustice. But what makes it uglier is that of those 428,000 children, they actually found 128,000 homes, family members to take in these kids. So there was only 300,000 kids in the entire United States that needed to find a home. Yet only 193,000 found a home. Now, according to a study done by the Hartford Institute, there are roughly 350,000 churches, congregations in the United States. If you do the math, that means if one family, almost one family out of every church, if just one family out of every church took one foster child in, the church itself could take care of the foster system. Yet 25% of the kids that are in the foster system aren't in a home. That's an injustice. And it's very concerning to me, especially when you consider the very strong warnings the Bible gives us in Deuteronomy 27.19. I'll let you look that one up later. But here's the thing you need to know. Even though those statistics might be compelling, for those who step into foster care, there is a major inconvenience that will be experienced. It's going to cost you many things. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you sleep. It will cost you money because the check they give you is kind of laughable. Okay? It's going to cost you your sanity at times. All right? If you're in foster care and you have not sought counseling, I'm concerned for you. 
okay? It's going to wreck your world. It's going to turn you upside down. There's a cost associated with it. Nobody goes into it and goes, man, this is just so much fun. Because altruism dies on the table after about 72 hours, okay? Because that's how long it takes to not get any sleep before like, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Are we, did we really hear from God? I think we made a mistake. We shouldn't be doing this. This is crazy. I don't think we can do this for very long, okay? It's going to cost you something. And so no matter what your area of injustice is, whether it's immigration, health care, whatever it is, the right thing to do will always cost you something. And so if it's not costing you anything, I would question whether or not you're doing enough or whether you're doing anything. Sacrifice is always going to be required for the right thing to be done. Now, the last thing I want to mention about justice, and this list is by far not an exhaustive list, all right, is that we need to challenge our laws at times. Our laws should never be the indicator of what the right thing to do is. Now, before you take this and run away and call me a heretic or treasonous, just hear me out. I am not suggesting that we rebuff our authorities and break laws in a spiteful manner. I'm not even suggesting that we break the laws in a civil manner. All I'm suggesting is that when there is an issue of tension or injustice, when we're trying to figure out how to restore God-given value back on people, that we recognize that our current laws aren't necessarily the ultimate authority on the matter. God is. God is the ultimate authority on what justice is. Look at what Jesus tells the religious leaders in Matthew 23, 23. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You see, the religious leaders during this time are notorious for leveraging the laws to suit their needs, but Jesus calls them out on it. We cannot hide behind laws. God sees through it all, and he doesn't give us a pass on ignoring injustice just because there are certain laws that might be in place. Laws are meant to be challenged and changed when they facilitate an injustice. When laws violate the God-given value to an individual, we cannot stand behind them. We cannot excuse our lack of action because of them. If laws were the final say on the right, what the right thing to do was, women would not have the right to even vote still. Segregation would still be legal. Now, we look back on these things and we go, well, it's a no-brainer. Of course the laws needed to change on those things. But if you go back in time, there were many in the church that were on the wrong side of the debate. And I wonder what are our little hot topic issues today that get us all riled up? That in a hundred years from now, we're going to look back on it and, and we're going to be thinking, man, the church got it wrong on this one. What are those issues? So at times, the laws need to be changed. Now, if I'm being honest, I think what scares us, and it even scares me, is that we know what some of the answers to these questions might be but we're afraid to answer them out loud because we know that if we speak the truth of like, this is what I need to do, well, now you need to follow through on that. Because again, if it's all lip service, God expects us to do something. 
that scares us. Because sometimes it's going to mean that we're going to have to give up something. We're going to have to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to be inconvenienced at times in order to do what is right. And to be fair, we don't have all the answers on many of these issues. So if I've given you that perception, I apologize. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm still working this stuff out. But what I know is that my focus needs to be on acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. So that when I bump up against one of these issues, that I'm willing to put my biases aside and simply ask God, is there an injustice here? And what does justice require of me? How do I love you, God, in this situation? Is someone's value being violated? And if so, what am I supposed to do? So going forward, regardless of what side of the debates you find yourself on, can we simply approach God with an open hand and simply ask, is there an area of justice here that needs to be addressed? And if so, what does justice require? Can we put aside any biases for comfort or control and allow God to speak into the matter? And then can we, just as we sang about, say, yes, Lord, and respond to God's answer, regardless of what it might cost us? Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord, I just ask for you to speak to each and every one of us. You know what's beneath the surface, the things that keep us up at night, the things that don't sit right with us, the things that you've probably put inside of us to to fight for, our holy discontent. And maybe we didn't have that language for it, but we knew that there was something inside of us that just wasn't okay with the things that we see And maybe we shrunk back because we felt helpless. Maybe we shrunk back because we didn't want to be inconvenienced. God, I pray that whatever has been holding us back, that you would give us the courage to push against it. God, that you would give us clarity on what injustices are around us that are touching us, that we can reach out and do something about, Lord, and that you would just give us the wisdom to know how to act, how to do justice. God, I pray that anything that I've shared opinion-wise or anything that may have been read into, Lord, that wasn't intended, God, just let that stuff fall to the floor so that we can focus on the heart of what's going on here, Lord. What are you calling us to do? What kind of church are you calling us to be? We're not here to have pretty services. We're here to make a change in this community for your kingdom's sake, to bring glory to your name so that broken families can be restored, so that people who are distant from you can know you and have peace beyond understanding. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's not about what we accomplish here. It's not about our success as a church. It's about glorifying your name. It's about living a life of obedience to you because we love you. And if it's for any other reason, Lord, humble us so that we correct our ways. And so just come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us this week. Don't let us walk on out of here and just let this be another passing message. Let it be a stake in the ground moment where we decide we're going to identify the injustices that are around us and do something about it. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, listen, if if anything stirred in you and you feel like you know what that injustice might be and you just want further prayer from that, we're going to have some uh, prayer team members up here that would love to just pray with you and just help just go before uh, God with you on whatever matters are bugging you. Um, I, I know this was a heavy message, um, but it's just something that's just been on our hearts as a staff, and we're just like, you know what? 
We're tired of being in debates and arguments. We just want to start seeing us be the church and just start dealing with these things, even as messy as they might be, you know, that we would come together and just really process this stuff in a way that humanizes everybody involved in the discussion. And so there's more to come next week, so we will see you guys next week. So guys, have a great weekend.